It was 2001, just days after the September 11th attacks. President George W. Bush stood before Congress and announced that we were at war. Not at war with a nation, but at war with a concept, terrorism. There were still fires burning at Ground Zero, and Americans were scared. Untextbook producer Ruba Memon is 19, and she spent her entire life with the war on terror in the background. I am a Muslim American, and I was born 2002. So, you know, the whole time I've been alive, we've been in this war. It's the country's longest war, and Ruba suspects that the Islamophobia that came along with it has become part of the American ethos. My friends, for example, um, some of them at school, they've had their hijab pulled off. And like, something that I've always grown up with is like my parents telling my brothers to shave their beards um, because they're like, oh, people are gonna think that you're a terrorist, like you have a beard, you like look like you fit the profile, like, so, you know, make sure to always shave your beard. Ruba wanted to understand why the war on terror was still going on 20 years later. She found the work of Dr. Alex Lubin, who wrote Never Ending War on Terror. He makes the case that the war on terror innovated new forms of warfare, like drone strikes and controversial interrogation tactics. But he also believes its roots are as old as the United States itself. This kind of war against a concept resembles the way the U.S. government fought Native Americans in the 19th century and suppressed black power movements in the 20th century. And he says that the war on terror's longevity comes partly from how Americans like to identify as both victims and saviors in these conflicts. Reading up on this history and, you know, seeing the effects of the war on terror, I want to basically be able to show myself and show others what are the long-standing impacts still today. Because it's not just a Muslim problem, right? It's not just a problem for them. It's, it's a problem for everyone, right? In this episode of Untextbook, producer Ruba Memon interviews Dr. Alex Lubin about the legacy of the war on terror two decades in. I'm Gabe Hostin, and this is Untextbook. Untextbooked. So today is August 24th, 2021. Just over a week ago, we saw that U.S. troops were being withdrawn from Afghanistan. The same U.S. troops that have been there the past 20 years following 9-11 and through the war on terror. I wanted to actually connect this to the first line of the conclusion in your book, Never Ending War on Terror. You say that the story has no conclusion just as it has no obvious beginning. But I was wondering if you can speak more on what you meant when you said that there is no obvious beginning, especially as a lot of people believe it starts with 9-11. Yeah, thank you for the question and thank you for having me here um, for this interview. I think of the war on terror as the sort of US and to some extent global military response to the 9-11 terrorist attacks. But I also would argue that the war on terror is a cultural moment in the United States. It is a worldview that sees the world divided into, as George W. Bush said, freedom-loving people and terrorists. What I wanted to achieve in my book, Never Ending War on Terror, was for readers to think of what we call the war on terror 
in a much longer frame in which we can see many of the tactics used in the War on Terror as tactics that have a much longer history, that have been targeted to different, towards different people for different ends at different times. For example, I try to connect some of the language and rhetoric about the War on Terror to the language and rhetoric that was used during the so-called Indian Wars in the founding of the United States. Colonial powers have often termed indigenous people resisting colonial powers uh, terrorists. And the acts of violence perpetrated often in defense of indigenous lands, it has been uh, termed terrorism. So in some ways, terrorism is very much a term that defines one's perspective. It's often used to describe non-state actors, and it's often used in contexts in which there's asymmetrical power relations. That is to say, where one imperial power terms the resistance fighting or the so-called guerrilla fighting of indigenous uh, populations as terrorists. In my book, I talk about how the term terrorist has been used to describe groups like the Black Panther Party, or more contemporary, in the more contemporary period, the Black Lives Matter movement um, has been termed uh, black radical extremists or terrorists. Uh, in the 1970s, in the war on drugs, people who sold drugs uh, internationally and within the United States were called terrorists. And in an effort to crack down on drug dealing, uh, states passed the Street Terrorists Act, which uh, referred to gang members as terrorists. So terrorism is a really flexible term that's often used as a means for states to justify intensive forms of policing or militarization. But the war on terror was off also a cultural moment that redefined certain meanings of American national identity. It was a war not only to preserve American freedom, a term that's not always clearly defined, but also one to preserve freedom globally. Again, another sort of elusive term that can be used for many different reasons. That's what I meant, is that the, the current war on terror obviously has a past. It's part of a longer history of U.S. warfare against so-called terrorists that has really been continuous um, since the founding of the nation. I was wondering if you could speak on what you mean when you say that the rhetoric in the war on terror has roots in American Indian wars. Well, remember, you may not remember because, uh, you know, a lot of the, the people that I teach now, college students, um, were born after 9-11. But following 9-11, when uh, the United States resolved that it would go after terrorists and states that harbored terrorists, they opened the door to a wide-ranging warfare without many territorial boundaries. And the rhetoric used pretty soon after 9-11 was similar to the sort of narrative of a U.S. Western film. Then-President George W. Bush said that he would smoke Osama bin Laden out of his caves, sort of invoking a John Wayne Western narrative. The U.S. military referred to Osama bin Laden as Geronimo when they hunted him down. So in that way, I think the, the rhetoric of Indian wars is alive in the ways that some talk about the war on terror. 
In the book, I talk about the war on terror not just as an actual war with serious consequences, but also a cultural moment in which American citizens had to be enlisted by redefining certain missions, certain definitions of what the United States meant. And one place was the Tribute to Heroes concert, which was a televised musical concert just a few days after 9-11 that was televised on all public networks, featured some of the biggest stars in music. And there were certain jarring moments in that concert that showed how 9-11 was redefining American culture. Two performances in particular, one by Bruce Springsteen, who was called The Boss. His song, The Rising, became something of an anthem of post-9-11 culture. It focused on the sort of redefined manhood of a nation who was down on its knees, but who stood up and fought against the world. Ironically, that was a song that was written before 9-11, and it was about deindustrialization in Springsteen's hometown of Asbury Park, New Jersey. And so a song that was about America falling economically and about the loss of jobs and boarded up storefronts became instead a story about American redemption um, after 9-11. In similar ways, I focused on the song by Wyclef Jean of the Fugees, who is a Haitian singer who sang Bob Marley's song, Redemption Song, which is a story about the redemption of enslaved people who go through the violence of racial terror in the Middle Passage and come out understanding a new kind of freedom by liberating themselves. And I talk about how ironic it was that Wyclef Jean, dressed in an American flag, a jacket uh, with an American flag on it, could somehow become emblematic of a post-9-11 culture in ways that sort of whitewashed, ironically, the history of U.S. slavery and turned Bob Marley's redemption song into a story about the redemption of American military power in the face of 9-11 terrorists. And with this redefining of terms to portray the United States in a better light, we see this new term of enemy combatant, right? That was used as a way to inflict torture without having to face any consequences, right? So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that. Right. So the Bush administration and the Obama administration and the Trump administration to some extent faced the problem of what to do with the suspected so-called terrorists that were captured in Afghanistan and Iraq. On the one hand, what to do is sometimes determined by international law, or should be, or by military law. The U.S. administration faced the question of whether people who were captured were prisoners of war. Were they members of Afghanistan? Were they citizens of Afghanistan and therefore captured uh, soldiers of Afghanistan? Well, two things are important to note there. First, the United States never formally declared war in the war on terror. So we were not at war with Afghanistan, right? Of course we were, right? We occupied it for 20 years. But it was never a formally declared war. And that meant that certain laws of war did not apply. And the POW laws, for example, did not apply. Instead, uh, very smart and cunning lawyers within the Bush administration 
developed the term enemy combatant to describe captured non-state actors. And because of that categorization, certain international and domestic laws and military laws did not apply. What that meant was that the enemy combatant was an extrajudicial category outside of the law, what some legal scholars have called a legal black hole. And therefore, the U.S. administration and its military could do basically whatever it wanted, or at least it felt emboldened to do what it wanted. Torture is already defined as illegal under international law, and the United States had proclaimed that it never tortured people. But if enemy combatants were seen as a different kind of category, as not even quite human, then could it be argued, the lawyer suggested, that the U.S. wasn't torturing, they were merely using the euphemism enhanced interrogations. The war on terror and the 9-11 attacks were seen as extraordinary events, somehow outside of history, as a violence and a terror that the world had never seen before. And therefore, as Dick Cheney argued, the U.S. would have to move to the dark side. It would have to engage in tactics outside of the legal parameters of warfare and human rights constraints. And that's how categories like enhanced interrogation and enemy combatants emerged. Another thing with the war on terror, we see that there's this new technology, right? With the drones, right? Right. So the drone technology existed before the war on terror, but the ability to arm a drone and to expand the drone network across huge swaths of a continent really developed uh, under the Bush administration and then the Obama administration. Now, the Obama administration came to power uh, on a campaign that said that torture was wrong, it was un-American, um, and that the Obama administration would close Guantanamo Bay. But that raised the question of what then do you do when enemy combatants are identified? How should the United States deal with people that it suspects of terrorism? And the Obama administration decided rather than capture and interrogate as the Bush administration did, that it would instead use a combination of human intelligence and drone technology to extrajudicially assassinate suspected and known terrorists. So the drone program became a form of killing in a remote controlled way that the US administration felt was on the one hand more reliable um, and more focused and targeted, but on the other hand uh, relied on uh, signal intelligence and other forms of surveillance that was not always as accurate as human intelligence. Another instance we see this is with Malik Jalal, right? Um, who you talk about in your book. Um, and I was wondering if you could tell us about his story. So Malik Jalal was written about in uh, The Guardian and independent newspapers in the UK. And he was an Afghan man who uh, was in the ledgers of the US military seen as the leader of a terrorist organization, of one of the factions of Al-Qaeda. And therefore, 
he was increasingly monitored wherever he went by drones. And he became uh, aware that drones were following him because there were strikes uh, when he would leave a place. Um, and he knew that he was on the so-called U.S. kill list, the list of targeted uh, terrorists in Afghanistan. He proclaimed that he was not a member of the organization that the U.S. thought he was, that he was not actually a terrorist. And so he left his family and he made his way to the U.K. so that he could appeal to U.K. officials to exonerate him, to take him off of the list, and so that he would not be targeted with a drone strike that would likely not only kill him, but also his family and friends. Um, and so it's just one example that came to light of someone who was basically prosecuted and scheduled for execution without trial. And that was a revision to the norms of U.S. military prosecution in the past. The Bill Clinton administration believed that terrorists should be captured and prosecuted in courts of law. And if scheduled for execution after that uh, court of law, so be it, but often just detained in, in prison. In the U.S. war on terror, however, following 9-11-2001, the U.S. dispensed with the notion that suspected terrorists should be prosecuted under courts of law, whether international law or U.S. law or military law, and instead moved to the program of extrajudicial assassination by drone. And in Jalal's case, he was convicted, he was accused, convicted, and sentenced to death without a trial, and he claimed entirely by mistake. UK authorities also believed that it was a mistake, and I believe that he was taken off of the kill list. Right. Obviously, we're seeing the ripples of the war on terror. For example, you were saying that, you know, there's a U.S. presence um, in over 40 countries to, you know, fight terrorism. Or there's we see this pre the presence of drones. And with airports, we see the TSA, which wasn't always there, right? So we see this, you know, these ripples, right? Um, so I was wondering if you could speak on how the war on terror has changed America and the day-to-day -day life of Americans. I would say that understandings of surveillance and policing within the United States have been transformed during the war on terror for a couple reasons. First, the Department of Defense had, for most of the 20 years of the war on terror, had a policy of sending surplus hardware from the war on terror, uh, military hardware that had been used in Iraq and Afghanistan, to the United States for police forces. Um, so that increasingly, US police forces look like occupying militaries rather than the sort of beat cop who's on the corner of every street. Instead, for example, following the Ferguson, Missouri protests of the Black Lives Matter movement, when the police were brought in, they looked like an occupying army with tanks and heavy machinery. Well, many of those tanks and heavy machinery came from the foreign battlefields of the war on terror. 
So that's one of the real ways, I think, that we see war, the war on terror shaping um, our day-to-day -day lives here. Another way that I think it shapes our lives here is that police forces in the United States increasingly train abroad and view policing as just another form of domestic counterinsurgency. So the war on terror rhetoric, the war on terror uh, practices used abroad increasingly come back to the United States in the ways that protest groups um, and everyday Americans are policed. I write about in the book how U.S. police forces increasingly train in places like Israel, where some police departments, like the New York Police Department, have offices for training because increasingly U.S. domestic policing is seen to be something like the police forces of an occupying army. So Black Lives Matter protesters in the United States frequently are treated like insurgents in the war on terror abroad. People who need to be contained, policed, they need to have their neighborhoods cordoned off from the large cities um, in which they're located. Um, so those are some of the real material ways that the war on terror has changed Americans' life. Not to mention just the day-to-day -day forms of surveillance and securitization that we see everywhere. The next question I wanted to ask you about was your title, The Never-Ending War on Terror. Do you think this war will eventually end or will it evolve and continue? I guess I would say two things. I, um, I wrote this book for students that I teach in college who are in their 20s or their late teens and 20s, many of whom were raised in the culture of the war on terror and haven't really known a history before the war on terror. And I think it's important for listeners to know that those of us who were raised in the Cold War, in the era of the Cold War, right, for us, the terrorists we were thought to fear, taught to fear in our schools and in our popular culture was communism. That was the evil empire. And communists could be the Soviet Union and the Russians abroad. It could be the Sandinistas. It could be uh, Latin American popular uprisings. But it could also be your neighbor, right, who led a secret life and could have been a communist. In the 1950s, it could have been your Jewish neighbors who were accused of being communists, or it could have been filmmakers who were accused of uh, portraying communist propaganda, or it could have been gay and lesbian people who were seen to be living hidden lives in the 1950s and 60s, and therefore maybe they were communists. And so as I wrote the book about the war on terror, I thought to the ways in which war on terror culture is somehow similar though it uses new language and new rationales, as the Cold War. And in that way, what are the things that have become normative in the name of fighting a war? And are those things that we should question? Secondly, who's winning the war? And at the end of my book, I have a very short section where I talk a little bit about who profits from the war. I describe the war on terror as one that has led to escalating surveillance and the diminishing uh, currency of privacy for U.S. citizens, as well as one that has wrought all sorts of devastation and displacement 
across the Middle East and Southeast Asia, not to mention in North Africa and Eastern Africa as well. It begs the question, why is it done? Who profits? And one of the things that I noted was that although the United States has spent $2 trillion in Afghanistan to displace the Taliban only to see the Taliban reinstated as it's exiting, that the stock prices of U.S. military companies, U.S. military contractors, has escalated exponentially during those 20 years. So that's part of the culture of the war on terror that I think remains to be fully investigated. Thank you so much for doing this interview today. Dr. Alex Lubin is the author of Never Ending War on Terror. Professor Lubin, where can people find more of your work? They can look at my website at Penn State University. The books are available from all sorts of booksellers online. And I also have several articles, which I post on my website as well. All right, thank you so much. Thank you for reading the book and for inviting me to talk about it on this podcast. Dr. Alex Lubin is a professor of African-American studies at Penn State. He's the author of Never Ending War on Terror. Ruben Memon is a sophomore at Northwestern University. Our website is untextbook.org and we're on social media at untextbook. Our music is by Silas Bowen and Coleman Hamilton. Untextbook is edited by Bethany Denton and Jeff Edman. Fernanda Rain is our executive producer. Untextbooked is a project of Got History, an organization that believes in a world where all young people can advance civic well-being for themselves, society, and the planet.